Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 50, five zero of Control the Controllables. Unbelievable landmark uh, for us, only, only a few months in. And, and, and at this point, actually, I want to say a big well done to, to everyone. It's been, it's been a challenging time globally for, for so many. It's been fantastic to see how the tennis world in particular has, has, has come together. People have really got stuck in. It's been uh, great to follow all the innovation, all of the hard work, um, and and all of the great lessons that so many people have been have been teaching across the board. So a big shout out to all of you, and a big appreciation for for you continuing to support the podcast. I'm delighted to say that today we have two Irishmen on the show. We have James Klusky. James Kluski was ranked 145 in the world ATP doubles and has got well known for a world record but also well known for being the private coach of Sir Richard Branson uh, which is which has opened up many doors in the business world he's written his own book he has lots of things going on and he's a delightful young man who who has so much to offer and also we got my partner in crime Mr John McGann is back on today's episode. Uh, I know you've all missed him, and I certainly have. I've missed having him by my side, and it's great to have him back. Uh, just the, the world, the busy world that we live in, he hasn't been able to make a few of the, the latest episodes. So, so welcome back, John. And without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Mr. James Kluski. James Kluski, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on Control, the controllables. A big, big thank you from... Dan and myself for coming on to the show tonight. A uh, pleasure to be here. And Klusk, a, a fellow, a fellow tiger. It's, I it's, gr- it's, yeah. I mean, if, if, if we must get at least twenty or thirty people download this, you know, if we put the hashtag Go Tigers, you know, we'll get some, uh, some of We're our old alumni. LSU jumper. So there you go. That's that's the college world, but no, it's it's great to see you. Um, great to have you have you on the show. You know, and, I, oh, and thanks, um, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to yeah hearing what you've been up to and hearing lots of different uh, um, stories that I've been picking up on on the internet. Uh, you seem like you've been doing some great things, so I'm I'm excited to find out more. Brilliant, thank you. Well, happy happy to be here and congrats on the on the podcast so far. I've tuned into a few few episodes, so you just need to lose John again. That's probably the next. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he got I, rid of me for about 50 episodes there. I'm sneaking <laughs> in on this one because I heard Plus Moisture was coming back in. So. Can, I just say, can I just say a big welcome back to John, actually? You know, while, whilst, whilst we do have that, that conversation coming up, and, and can I also just say it's through no choice of my own that he hasn't been here. He's just an extremely busy man. Uh, we're, we're, pri- we're privileged to have you back, John. So I know the viewers have all been asking about you and where you are, making sure you're okay. John is alive and well, and uh, it's great to have you back, mate. Alive and kicking, lads, and love being on the show here, and uh, great to be back on with, with Big Jay from Ireland. And just for the, the listeners listening here, we've got James Kluski, um, 
15 professional titles to his name, an Irish Davis Cup professional, ATP doubles career high of 145 in the world, a junior Irish national champion. Um, he also holds a Guinness World Book of Records for the longest match ever played, 60 hours in total. And he also has been a private tennis coach to Sir Richard Branson. Now, before we get into it, James, um, what I really, really want to know is, besides that fantastic profile that you have, how the hell did you end up on Necker Island <laughs> walking back some pina coladas with Mr. Richard? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny one. Um, yeah, look, it was 2015 and uh, I... I played in, I actually got into the ATP event in Bastad in Sweden, the 250, just after Wimbledon. And I heard some, some players talking, or I think it was at the players' party, but people were talking about this event called the Necker Cup, which is, you know, Richard Branson's pro-am on his island. The company runs the event. And, you know, guys like Djokovic and Nadal have been there in the past. So there's, I suppose there's 16 pros and then kind of 16 business people playing it. So I heard about the event. I was like, geez, this is amazing. Um, and I had a very loose connection to a guy, Trevor Short, who actually is the founder of, of the event. He's one of the co-founders of the event. And I actually just reached out to him. Um, and this was kind of in the early days of the event. And I just reached out to him and I said, look, uh, can we arrange a call? So he jumped on a call with me and I basically, my pitch to him was, you know, my ranking is, is 145, but what I'll do is I'd love to just, I'll stand on the court all day, basically is what I said. So when, you know, the pro, like the Nadal type of person or the Caroline Bosniaki, if they're off kind of having their pina coladas, I'll be on the court and I'll be, I'll be the one who's, um, you'll never be short a pro basically. And like, I mean, my, my philosophy is like, geez, all he can do is say no, you know? Um, and he came back and was like, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, we, he agreed to me coming over and then I went there and obviously, I mean, I felt, I felt a little bit uneasy the first day there. I remember being like, what am I doing here? Like, as in, do I really belong at this kind of event, you know? And then, um, I was lucky enough to, 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 to meet Richard there, obviously. And then I met, uh, one of the guys who runs the Island. Um, and then long story short, I got a, I got an email about a month later. I suppose it's kind of an Irish story in that, like, at the bar, I met the guy who runs the island, basically, you know. Um, and about a month later, I got an email saying, would I come out um, and, and coach Richard Tennis and cover the coach that's there who was going on holidays? So I've been lucky enough to do it, you know, a, a good number of times, go and, and, and cover uh, the coach's holidays. Um, and, you know, then I've, I've, I've really got to know Richard from that, like, and it's been an amazing experience. And not just him, obviously the people that you meet that come through the island. And um, so it's been, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those ones where I say, like, you, you just never know where one phone call is going to lead, lead you to, you know. And uh, when I think about where that has led me, it's just been incredible. Like, and it's, it's unbelievable. And, and I think, like, to, to those listening, it, it is exactly that. And, and, and I suppose my question, James, is, is that always been a natural thing that you've had? I guess, obviously, the Irish... Do, do tend to be known for having conversation, you know, and, net, and networking and doing those things? Or is that something that you've almost had to teach yourself to put yourself in that position? Is that a lot of people would shy away from that. And hopefully yeah. people listening will see that actually 
when you got something to say, say it. You never quite know. Yeah, it's a fu- it's a funny one, like because as a kid I would have been very shy. Like as a junior, I would have been very shy. I think, uh, and I know we're probably talking about American college, but I think that really helped me grow up a lot as well in terms of, you know, kind of classes there, and you know, you have to present a lot in America, and you have to be a lot more kind of. Um, they're just the culture is a little bit different as well, you know. Like as in from my background, like I, as I said, I would have been quite shy. So I don't really know if there was like a turning point, but I, I you know, as in with that, but I just kind of, I think in America kind of came out of myself a little bit in terms of, you know, developing my personality and stuff. But in terms of like the necker thing and reaching out, I mean, I think, and in terms, you know, in business setting and tennis setting and everything, I think, well, what's my value add, right? My value add is that I can, I can play tennis. And I just kind of had the thought process, like, well, all this guy can do is say no. And I just reached out to him and, and, uh, he said, yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, you have to put yourself in those situations. Um, and I think it's around having EQ as well. You know, it's like, I'm not going to, I wasn't going to call the guy 50 times and pester him, but yeah, yeah. at the same time, I knew I could add value at the event. And I was very lucky that I, that I got to go. And then, you know, I obviously worked really hard when I was there. I wasn't just, yeah. you know, standing at the bar drinking pina coladas all day. I actually, yeah. <laughs> I added value around the event. I helped out where Absolutely. I was um, And then I've now I've been lucky to become kind of a, you know, when I would go back there that a lot of people would, would I would know a lot of kind of, a part, I don't want to say, but almost part of the community in some ways, you know, that I know the people there. So, um, yeah, like it's, it's an interesting question. I don't fully know the, I don't know when I kind of first made that decision, but like, yeah. if you don't ask, you don't get as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And if we if we park the bit about Richard Branson, I, I want I do want this to be a James Klusky podcast. But obviously, Sir Richard Branson is a, is a massive name, and, and and I think that is a big part of what you've then gone on to to achieve. And and we'll get into some of those bits mm. after. But if we then go back back to the day in Ireland, we've had a few Irish guys on the podcast now. I don't want to, I certainly don't want the podcast to be seen as a, an Irish tennis slagging off session, which I think sometimes we can go down that path with Irish tennis and be, Mm. and and, and I I want the positives to come through as well, because certainly in your era, there were some fantastic players that came through. And and I think I mentioned it to a couple of the guys as well, not only fantastic players, but fantastic guys who, who represent so many, so many great things in terms of work ethic, you know, what they, what they put into it. What's your memories of you growing up playing tennis and I suppose your journey up until college really yeah so so i mean i started in what's called the parks tennis program uh which is essentially kind of makes tennis accessible for everyone uh and it really just went from there my mom played a little bit but i mean to kind of fast forward i was always you know within the top two top four um in ireland then i think it was around under 14 uh westwood westwood clontarf opened which had seven indoor courts which was close to where I was going to secondary school. Um, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read the book Bounce where, you know, sometimes it's like not even the 10,000 hour rule, but sometimes you're, you're kind of lucky in some ways by proximity to indoor courts and facilities yeah, yeah. and stuff. So this indoor center opened close to, close to where I was going to secondary school. Um, a guy, Larry Jurovich, uh, took over as the tennis director there, came from, came from Canada. 
and he had a big influence on 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 my tennis and my journey um and i think what he did was he really created a culture of of performance um, yeah. and i think he was very good at at kind of raising our expectations and our beliefs um and like not to not to not to blow smoke but like i know that when i've seen john with his squad you know he has that kind of that kind of, there's a great culture there and obviously dan i've been to your academy as well and i've seen the culture there and obviously followed the social media and stuff and it's almost that it's almost you know went from being a, an individual sport into almost a team piece oh, yeah. Um, and yeah like uh, i i think he had a massive massive impact um and then i was actually speaking about this to someone uh the last day um like when I was, when I was 15, uh, my brother actually had a spinal injury accident. And so he's paralyzed from the, the chest down. So and he was, he was 17 at the time. And that obviously had a huge influence on my life, you know, and, and I think, you know, my parents, he was in hospital for a year. My parents were kind of, I went from being the kind of, you know, the tennis, not focal point, but obviously the youngest and probably the most spoiled to being you know, our family was in, it was obviously a tough time for our family, but I really just threw myself into tennis. You know, I really trained hard and just threw myself into, into tennis. And really that support structure of Larry was very good to me. Like, the, you know, he, he was very good to me in terms of even off the court. Um, and then parents of other players in the squad were kind of giving me lifts around and stuff. So um, I was very lucky. I have great memories from it. Um, yeah. We trained really hard, but at the same time, when I say to people now around the training and, and that sort of stuff, I never remember it being like, you know, a chore to be going to training. I just remember it being fun. And maybe for me, it was a little bit of a, an escape as well, you know? Yeah. And you touched on there the camaraderie of, of, of the team and, you know, having people come together. I'm certainly a big believer in team environment, individual pathway, you know, mm. and I think it's, it, how, how we do create and obviously we both still you're sat there in your LSU Tiger top you know mm. we 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 were connected through that you yeah. know that was that was our connection we'd never met and instantly when 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 we met each other I wanted to help you you want to help me there's kind of a yeah. there's, some, there's something about that and, and and again I've touched on this on a couple of podcasts I think Ireland has that as well you know, there's kind of, if you're from Ireland, there's a, there's a real, let, let's stick together. Do you, do you yeah. think, do you think maybe that team thing could be done a little bit better across, across Ireland? I don't know how close you are to tennis now. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, to, to be fair on that now, I would be a little bit more removed than I have been in the past, but I have yeah. seen like, like, you know, John's, uh, John's stuff is great. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good happening. Like, I mean, I think, I think it's the environment that needs to be created. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of silos where people are doing their own thing. Um, yeah. Now, having said that on the flip side, I think competition is really good. You know, when I think back to my age group, Larry had his kind of a academy where we had a couple of the, you know, very good players and then Owen Casey coached another couple of good players. And it was kind of a competitive piece around that, which, which was great. Um, look, I'm not going to sit here and say I know the solutions to, yep. to, to performance tennis in Ireland, but what I will say is, is I agree with you. I, I mean, I think the most important thing is around the team environment and, and 
creating that culture of everyone pushing each other along. Yeah. One thing, one thing that I think that lacks in, in Irish tennis that I've seen over the years is that players, um, players we're more concerned about our losses than our wins. So there's an element sometimes where players will kind of avoid playing tournaments because they're worried yep. about seeding for future tournaments. Yep. So I think that's kind of, that's ingrained in our culture a little bit. And I remember, um, I remember, uh, you know, and my mom would kind of have that mentality a little bit as well. Now she probably won't listen to this podcast. It's okay for me saying that. But I remember like, I remember Colin O'Brien saying, so Colin won, fits under 18 when he was under 17 so he won irish nationals under 18 when he was under 17 and he said he was going to play his next year under 18 and a few people said to him oh why would you do that like you yeah, already yeah. won it you know so there's that mentality that i think it has kind of permeated through the through the culture and um, and i i even think back and i remember thinking this like you know it's a lot it was a lot easier for me as an under 16 to go to Spain and play a tournament and lose in the second round or the quarter to the guy who's, you know, 80 in Europe or something, six, four, seven, six. Then it was actually, you know, go to Dundalk, for example, and be the number one seed and have the pressure on you and have to win. Like, so I think there's a lot of merit in that. Like, um, and I think sometimes we've shied away from that a little bit. So that would be my two cents around the kind of performance performance piece. But having said that, there's a lot that's right as well. So I don't want to be kind of too too critical, you know. You, do you think uh, when you were growing up, James, that, uh, and I suppose I've asked this in other podcasts, it's a recur recurrence sort of theme, but part of your success was that when you were playing at home in Ireland and you were able to play against, you know, lads that weren't, you know, competing on Davis Cup teams and they were playing the, the National Opens at Donnybrook and the indoors. And I think I remember actually one summer actually playing you in a Masters event. And yeah, it was, yeah, a, no, and yeah. it was at the end of the year, the likes of Peter Clark and other lads um, like that that were competing at a Davis Cup level, Nugent and these yeah. lads that were very, very good. Do you think that helped your development as a young kid? Oh, like, I mean, I, I just, I don't, I, and I don't want to go off on a rant, but I just don't understand players. Like I don't understand whether it be Irish players or anywhere. Cause you see it everywhere. Like, but you do. Yeah. Players yeah. kind of, there's, there's such an emphasis on training and like train, you know, training for training sake almost, as opposed to for me personally, it was all about competing. Like, so yeah. you need to try and foster an environment where like, you're actually training to compete. Now I know in this current environment, that's very difficult. So I'm not, you know, but aside from that, like it's, you know, I'm even, I've started playing a little bit of paddle tennis and I, I was saying to the guy last weekend, I was like, is there a ladder I can join? Because I'm enjoying playing a few matches, but I actually want to, I want to be moving up something, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's, how do you, how do you, like how do you make it essential for these players to play? And I think there's an onus on players. I think there's an onus on players to actually support these tournaments as well and play them like, you know, because yeah. players globally and not just Ireland look for funding, but they need to support their local tournaments. They need to try and play and encourage, um, encourage that piece. So, so yeah, so that, that, that's, that's what I think of that. If I can, yeah. if I can take you back a little bit, there's a, there's a couple of things that I think there's a couple of really important points to probably pick out a little bit and, and the first one is around around the competition between coaches 
Mm. So, I, so I actually, in the last podcast that did a couple of days ago with a couple of Spanish coaches who, who've worked in, in Britain, we kind of compared British tennis and Spanish tennis. And I think Irish tennis is more similar to British tennis than it is to Spanish tennis. Yeah. And, and we fell into a conversation again on the back of that today with the, with the same guys. And, and they were saying that the British juniors are probably better than the Spanish juniors at the very top. Mm. You've probably got like one or two Brits who are better than the best Spanish. Mm. However, what the Spanish have, and it's almost this concept, and it might be something that you understand from business as well, is the Spanish are trying to make lots of people rich and Mm. maybe they might have a couple of millionaires come out of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I always think in, in, in the British culture now, and I, and I do think the, te- the Irish culture is quite similar. It's almost all about just making the millionaire. Mm-hmm. So, so then you get one or two, and in a, and in a nation like Ireland, and, and, and Britain's quite similar, you don't have such a big base. Now, so then I ask myself the question, why not? And, and in Spain, you, you coach to, to produce players, so, yeah, yeah. you know, whereas in Britain, I would put Britain in the same place. Mm. You coach, you coach to pick up lessons or you, yeah. co- or you coach lessons. It's yeah, kind yeah. of, the, it's kind of the mentality. So, so what ends up happening? Like I know that within our area, there's, there's six or seven, eight, nine, ten academies that if we don't, if we're not at tournaments with the players, if we're not making sure that they absolutely develop, they're going to mm. jump ship very quickly. Mm. And that's not to mention the 200 academies in Barcelona yeah. <laughs> and the 100 in Valencia and the 50 yeah. in Alicante and the 25 in Seville. You know, and, and you could probably... I don't know what you think about this, John. I mean, do you, do you feel under pressure as a tennis coach to lose players? Like, do you feel like you've got to do an amazing job? I know you do because you've got pride in what you do. But do you feel that pressure to do that job? Otherwise, the players will go off to another coach, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think again, like James has said there as well, I think the culture has changed an awful lot, um, you know, within Ireland, within across the world. Um, I suppose I'd be the type of guy that would put pressure on myself each day, that I want to try and do the best for the players as much as I can. But... Yeah, I, I, I feel an ownership on myself that, you know, I want to be able to, for example, this week, I want to be able to, to get to my national tennis championships with the players that I've been working with throughout the year and give them the best service possible that I can. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you're always going to have the, you know, there, there's in the back of your mind that worry that a player may not feel that they are getting enough or they feel that they can get more at, a, at other academies that's always going to be uh, I think that's always going to be a case within the tennis game um, yeah I, to answer your question <laughs> I suppose there is an element of that yeah just, just to follow up on that like I, I think a philosophy in some countries and, and I think Ireland is and John can correct me if I'm wrong on this but I think like a philosophy has been to try and you know produce this kind of you alluded to it earlier Dan but like produce a player right yeah as opposed to the philosophy needs to be like get as many players playing as possible 
the cream will rise to the top. And then, you know, the thing that I find, the thing that I find sad in the last couple of years is like, if you look at, if you look at league tennis, you know, here, for example, it's the same guys playing the whole time, right? So there's an element where kids stop playing and they, and they kind of are burnt out from the sport and they hate the sport and they end up mm. stopping and kind of drifting away from it. Maybe they'll come back in the future. But I think, I think there's an, the, you need to try and get a base of players that like if you look at, say, the generation that I played in, a lot of them went to the college in the States you know, there was a lot of good D1 college players. And then of that group of players, you know, a couple went into jobs and still play tennis and a couple went and played professionally. And there's that kind of thing. Whereas I think there's been a shift where there was a focus on like, we're just going to focus on these four players or something. Do you know what I mean? And it was almost yeah, yeah. like neglect there of like, you know, the wider, the wider group. Um, yeah. that, that would be my kind of take on what I've seen. Um, over the last couple of years, and John, I don't know if you agree with that or. or, or... No, it'd be the, the same mindset as you, James, and having played the game and given it a wee spin after college as well. I think you know, as a nation as well, within Ireland, we're very, very small. And growing up, I I know as a, as a kid growing up, I would was very, very lucky to be able to see the likes of Owen Casey, Scott Barron, their guys that were playing Davis Cup, and that I was able to go and watch them and you know, play against them and um, be around and watch them. And I think that's a huge, uh, it's a huge uh, asset to have as a young kid when you're growing up to see professional players play with, you know, to, to, to watch them with the naked eye is totally different to watching, you know, players on a TV. Mm. And I think we were very lucky as kids growing up. And yeah. then there ended up being a big group of kids, you know, that was playing ball like yourself that went on to have a, a, a brilliant career, like James McGee, um, your, your friend, and we had him on a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, yeah. like Connor Nyland. Yeah, you know, yeah. best ever players to come out of Ireland. He's all went to college. Um, but they, he's, we all played in the same tournaments. We, so you all felt like we were all part of the same tribe. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that's very important, especially in tennis, because it's such a tough game. It's such a tough game. You know, it, doing it on your own is... You know, I, I think it's very, very difficult. And you need uh, good people around you with the same type of mindset, like you've just said. And I think that's going to give you a better chance uh, going forward for the future. Mm. And, and in terms of college, kind of, was that always the plan for you? Did you, was that, did you see that as the pathway for a while or how did that come about? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I, I saw that as, as, um, as the plan, yeah. Like, I think... I mean, for me, like I, I did sit on a, on a, I think a commercial board at some point in tennis Ireland, like a couple of years ago, but, and I was saying like my one point around that was, I think the success of Irish tennis has actually been the, the players that have gone to the college system. And, 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 you know, if you look at, if you look at what college has given players, um, you know, say like John, someone like John Doran, who went to Harvard and Rory Green, who went to Yale, who was in my age group. Barry King goes to Notre Dame, Daron, like all these players went over and, and a lot of them went to really good academic schools and then ended up, and their tennis racket got them in the door, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, for me, the plan was I want to I wanna play professionally, but college is the best route to do that. And, um, you know, I, I kind of look at it like, obviously there's, there's exceptions to the rule. There's 
people who kind of you know go pro at a young age and they're they're amazing and they're world beaters and so on but for me if you look at players generally you probably have you probably have about a four or five year window to play professionally give or take like as in you know your best years and are you better to do that at 18 or are you better to do that at 22 23 like so for me um college was the was the route i chose and and in i think like forgetting about actually putting tennis aside completely at the moment just even to grow up and and mm. and and kind of learn about life and stuff you know uh and hear all the dang here stories as well <laughs> i haven't been to see your statue yet and i'm hoping to get back to see that statue of you <laughs> the, the way that i perform there in the fall there'll be no they'll not be putting any statue <laughs> That'll be for sure. So, and tell us, for those listening, tell us, just give us a couple of minutes on the college experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of a lot of listeners will be very familiar with college, but I mean, just, I mean, the amount of matches you play, the competitiveness of it, the seriousness of the training, the facilities that you're, you know, that you're you're using, the team environment. Um, look, it's really important that you find the right place for you and not every place is right for certain people. So I'd encourage players, you know, players who are looking at going to take your visits to a couple of colleges and, and see, you know, who is the right coach for you. Um, but, you know, I look back at college, you know, I, I mean, I remember one year I played Kevin Anderson in doubles. I played John Isner. You know, these guys obviously have gone on to have pretty yeah. amazing careers and, and John Isner did four years at Georgia, so yeah. he didn't have, have a bad career. So um, I think for me as well, I think a big thing coming from Ireland was getting into into the heat in Baton Rouge and, and yeah. then on to the pro career where like, you know, when I went to hot places, it was not as, as challenging obviously as it, as, it, as, it, as it would have been. Um, but I mean, I look back now and I actually... Uh, so I mean I'm 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 sure Dan you'd agree with me, but like best years of your life in terms of yeah. just everything is everything is a really good experience. And I think it taught me a lot in terms of even post tennis. I mean, I think one big thing is around time management. So like yeah. you know, balancing academics and tennis and half five in the morning weights and all those different things that it just helps you grow up. So um there's obviously your your tennis is going to improve you 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 would think um but also just the other areas of your life now i will say just to close out on the college thing that you know there's there's distractions as well right so you need to be you need to be conscious of that and you need to go with the 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 um the right mindset as well because you can go one of two paths you can go and and you know have the college experience where you go out a couple of nights a week and your tennis doesn't improve and you probably don't end up the player you want to be or you can go and use college as a stepping stone and obviously you know have a good time as well but be working really hard you know um, and and I like to think I chose the, the latter and I worked hard in college and I improved a lot because of it and I would um, imagine I, uh, go on sorry I would imagine that Irish accent caused you a few distractions. <laughs> I was, I know, I had a, I had a, I was actually supposed to go back for a football game this year, which is pretty sad. That I can't, can't obviously make it. But um, no, I, I, no, I, I definitely loved it. And I mean, obviously, you know, you know, a couple of guys are still doing well. Like Mike Venus is still, still yeah. obviously ripping it up, and and uh, and Ken and Neil as well um, are doing well as well. So like. 
you know, I was very lucky to to have crossover with those guys and live with all those guys as well. And uh, and it's it, it's great to see, you know. So how many years were, were you on the team with Ken? I did. T- I was two years with Ken and two years with Neil, actually. Right. Okay. And and two and two or three years with Venus as well. Um, I actually played with Venus. Um, I played with Venus one year doubles his first year, and then Neil came and I got bumped. <laughs> so then they put Neil and and uh, Neil played with Mike at one, and then I was really kind of. I was put down to three to try and because we were a little bit weak at three, so uh, that was kind of the that was kind of I was sent down to three. But I mean, Mike, for example, Mike, like I mean, Mike is some worker, you know, like he's he's he? worked so hard. Ah, oh, he worked so hard, you know, and and it's no it's no um, it's no surprise for me that he's done that he's done so well, you know. He's yeah. he's a hard worker, like, and he deserves every every bit of success he gets. And this, so for those listening, that's Michael Venus. Who has he won a Grand Slam? Yeah, he won the French with Ryan Harrison. So, uh, so, so there you go. And, and and Michael, so Michael Venus on the on the team at LSU with with James. And and, and yeah, I, I like hearing stories like that. You know, I think the the ones that put it in, you know, deserve yeah, the success no, that they get. You know. Yeah. No, he's 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 something else. Like, um, and. Yeah, no, it's no surprise to me how well he's done. He's 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 a great guy. Like so, I'm I'm very happy for him. And obviously, Ken and Neil are having great careers yeah, as well. Fantastic. Yeah, about them, but but That's Mike fantastic. stands out. Mike stands out for me as someone who just like he gets the maximum out of his his tennis. You know, he 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 he's ruthless when it comes to uh, his his training and everything. And and uh, he's done great. It's funny you say that. I, I remember the first time saying, uh, seeing Michael, and I think he may have been only in the second year in college. Maybe he was the, or he was coming to the end of his college years. He was at a futures event. We were playing a, a tour out in Thailand, and uh, I was playing with a guy called Raven Klassen. And I remember, oh, yeah, uh, remember Michael was there, and with another guy from LSU. But uh, and we were talking John, about yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. uh, but like you said, that he was up, up every morning six a.m. and he was just like a workhorse on the on the on the practice courts and um, yeah. great guy to be around. Uh, got to hang around that guy and another f- a few f- a few college guys for those couple of weeks. But a uh, great yeah. tennis player. He's gone on to do great things. Yeah, no, he he he's uh, yeah, he's great. And a, and a little shout out at this point for Coach Jeff Brown and Coach Mark Burras. You know who. You know those those guys obviously developed developed those player players in the college, the college years, and you know I think it's a it's a fantastic reflection of the job that they did as well. Yeah, and one one thing on Jeff, like you know, just I know a lot of players. Not a, like there's a there's a there's a good number of players that will go to college and they end up kind of you know being burnt out, kind of not liking their coach. You know, it, yeah. it, 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 but. You know, Jeff, everyone loved Jeff as in, you know, we Absolutely. all loved him and he was, uh, he was, you could go to him with anything, with any, any problems or, any, you know, he was so helpful. So, and, and Mark as well. So, I mean, I, I would be very positive around my college experience and uh, if I could go back in time, I would, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> imagine, uh, imagine now we know what we know, oh. being able to. Being able to then have those four, four and a half years back, yeah, it's, it would be yeah. amazing. I mean, I, I looked at it the other day. I graduated 18 years ago, and I was like... Oh, God. Oh, man. 
started <laughs> oh, started 22 years ago it's just like it's it anyway like Rick, yeah. it, it, it flies by so and, and during college was it always your your thought your ambition that you would you would go and play on the tour yeah always my ambition now i probably went to i went to college thinking i would play maybe play singles as well after like but i think in college you kind of i kind of got the realization that do you know what like i mean i was like i wasn't like i was winning at one you know i was my senior year was losing at two really played kind of i was a good five in singles now i played singles i was 800 like so i wasn't a bad singles player but i just yeah. knew that you know I, I didn't have the potential to be a top 200 singles player yeah. top, you know so so and doubles was doubles was more my game and i think you know looking back on my career like as in you know, I'm not a great, I'm not a great athlete by any stretch of the imagination. Although I should, I should give a shout out. That I remember being at Soto, and you were doing the fitness testing, <laughs> and I beat Brody over five years. It was like some five yard sprint, and I beat Brody. And every time I see him, I'm like, I still have you over five yards. <laughs> but um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be a great athlete. So, but I was a competitor, like I, you know, and I, I, um, I worked hard as well, and and I. Uh, yeah, I find like I was a good kind of thinker on the court. I had a couple of weapons and, and, you know, I'm pretty content in terms of after my career, how I did, you know, I think, absolutely. you know, I, I had some, you know, I think I could have done better, but I also could have done worse as well. And, you know, I think, I think the thing with tennis is everyone has a story, you know, so we, we all have, we all have a story around it, but um, I'm pretty content. Um, I, I love, uh, I would have read a lot of John Wooden. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with John Wooden. So the you, for the, your listeners, the legendary UCLA basketball coach who died a couple of years ago. Uh, he was 99 when he died. He created this thing called the Pyramid of Success. Um, and his quote on success is, success is peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction of knowing you did your best to become the best you're capable of becoming. So I love that quote, like, and I kind of think of that, you know, if can I look in the mirror and say I did my absolute best? I'm pretty sure I did, you know. So, so I'm I'm content on that, like. No, absolutely, and and I and I oh. have to, I have to say on that as well. Two things stand out for for me on you, James, and 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 the first one is actually something that we'll probably we've already talked about, and we'll probably get into again, and that's your net networking. Networking <laughs> capabilities. I thought you were going to say it looks like the guy from Home Alone. <laughs> no, but you do. You do. You do look like him. You do. You do look. For those that are that are listening, just just picture Home Alone, the two the two robbers, the tall one, Marv, <laughs> and that and that's who it is. No, but your your networking capabilities, I think, were yeah. were fantastic. And I think when it when we're talking about the doubles world, that's important. You know, yeah, but uh, and just before you say the second thing, I think that's taught me a lot in terms of business. Um, so we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. And then, and then the second one for me is how curious you always were. You know, mm. I think I, you you really wanted to learn your trade. You know, mm. and that's I don't know if you can share anything on that, but I I, I know when you were at Soto, we we would do sessions where you were just like. Okay, so I'm here. No, no, 
there and you and you wanted to get it to the inch mm. and you went through it and you shadowed it and you you absolutely wanted to learn your trade as a doubles player you know and you were leaving no stone unturned can you it, to, to those two points resonate with you is there anything yeah, you'd like, like to uh, add on the first one on the networking thing i think and we'll talk about my career after tennis but like i think that's a skill that that in doubles you specifically have to have right because if you're in like you know if you go back if you're an irish player at the time i was the only irish guy who was playing doubles and you know you're you're looking for a good partner and and what tends to happen is the british players play with the brits the french play with the french the americans play with the americans and so on right so like i remember you know I was obviously trying to play with the best players and a lot of it is around networking. It's getting to know yeah. people and it's, and it's, and it's put again, kind of back to the previous people, putting yourself in the situation and trying to break into these groups and to try and speak to people and see. So I did quite well, like networking to get maybe a good singles player to play with me or a doubles yeah. guy to play a couple of weeks. And, and it was like, it's a business, right? You know, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're a sole trader and you run your business. And you need to, you, you're trying to move your ranking up to get these points. And for me, it was around, how do I get the best, how do I get the best partner for me? Well, and so now there's obviously, I just remember like, like we can, the second point, uh, remind me to come back on that. But the, the first one, I, I remember like some of the regrets I have, I remember like playing futures, right. And, and getting to a stage where, if I didn't win the futures, I was disappointed. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of your expectation changes as you move up. Right. But then I remember, so I remember playing futures first and not feeling like I belonged. And my, yeah. my, I remember the Irish guys, we'd say like, say there's John McGann over there. Now maybe John McGann's a British guy was like, is he a good player? Does he have a point? That was yeah. like the frame of reference. Does someone have a point? Yeah, that was yeah. your definition of being a good player. Right. And then it obviously changes as you, you know, you go into futures and, and you kind of have this self doubt around, am I good enough to play here? Yeah. And then you move through that. And I remember getting to the stage where you kind of win or final was, if you didn't win or final, it was a disappointing week. And then I, I remember the first challenger I went to, or first couple of challengers really, I didn't feel like I belonged there. Yeah. You know, I didn't feel like I was good enough to be there. And this is me being brutally honest. Like I really, you know, I remember uh, actually went with Connor to to Kazan in Russia, the challenger there at the start of the year, just kind of sneak into it with someone. And I remember signing on the Connor was like, "Oh, sign on the practice court is looking," and I think it was like Merchenko signed with me on the court, and he was maybe sixteen singles at the time or something like that. And I remember thinking like, "Now this is ridiculous when I say this, but I remember thinking this guy's going to hit a few balls with me and be like." you know, why is this guy in the tournament? He's terrible. Uh, yeah, you know what yeah. I, mean? I remember yeah. having these thoughts around and it was like this comfort level that when I was at the challengers, I didn't feel like I belonged there, but then you gradually kind of erode that away and you get more comfortable. You, you get, you get to know the other guys and I would be good at, as again, the networking piece, I would be good at, I would be social at talking to people in the players lounge and getting to know people. And then I got to the stage where, look, I won a couple of challengers. I was, I was doing okay. And if I didn't get to maybe the semis or probably the semis, I was kind of disappointed in terms of my week. Um, but then I remember then getting into Bastad, the ATP 250. 
got into that. You know, that was pro- that's probably the weakest tour event of the year because it's just after Wimbledon. Got into that a couple of times, and I remember having the same, the same exact same piece. I remember Ferrer was booked on the practice court beside me, and I had the court booked. And I remember thinking, like, this sounds absolutely ridiculous, but I remember thinking Ferrer is going to be hitting, and he's going to just kind of stop and go, "Who is this? Who is this guy? <laughs> like, is this guy a fan who's just walked onto the court?" You know. So, like, I definitely, I definitely had this kind of doubt around my tennis. You know, and and but I actually came to the conclusion, and I have, and I do feel that now that like you kind of understand that everyone is going through that. Do you know, like we all have our own battles. You know, people are going through different things at different times. You know, people are struggling with their serve. People are struggling with their forehand. People are struggling with their belief. Whatever it is, people are coming back from injury. And the other thing is like no one actually really cares. Like, do you think David Ferrer is going to hit and be even? He doesn't even know, you know, he's not even looking over there. So like, but it's all, it's all like man-made in in, in your mind. Um, So that's a long, that's a long way of saying in terms of networking. But I definitely remember, you know, realizing, look, I need to get good partners and I need to be social with players. Do you think the networking piece though helps you feel comfortable quicker? Yeah, I, I do think so. Yeah, no, I think that's a good that's a good point. Um, and look, like I mean, I think there's some unbelievable guys on the t- there's unbelievable people on the tour who are great friends and people that really kind of mentor and help you. And like Freddie Nielsen is one. I'm sure I think you had Freddie on at some point. But like yeah. Freddie was very good to me. Like Freddie played, you know, Freddie was Wimbledon champion. He played a couple of events with me. He, I would go for. I remember going for, for food with Freddie at tournaments and having like, I would really kind of tell him my fears and my, you yeah. know, I would confide in him around my, you know, my doubts and all that stuff. And, he, and like, hypothetically, I could be, you know, I could be playing him in the next round, right? Like it's not, it, you know, it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I think there's, what's great about tennis is there is a, there's a community there and players will support other players. And I mean, I definitely supported other players as well who were who were going through things. Um, so, yeah, like I do think it. I think it it does make you feel more more comfortable if you're if you're um, if you're kind of opening yourself up to other people. Definitely, as in you know, practicing with them. It just there's a natural kind of improvement yeah. there, you know. Yeah, no, and it's a it's a big message for juniors actually. And you know, yeah. we we just took a trip to Valencia last week. And, and, and actually one of the biggest things we try to create with those trips is feeling comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, and just mm. getting used to being in that environment, getting used to asking for practice balls, getting used to going up okay. and just to random people and asking them to practice, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, all of those, all of those type of things. I think, I think the earlier that people can get used to that, because it is, I mean, this was a, they call it a TTK warrior tour event, which is mm. basically a Spanish national regional event, but it runs the same as Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. It's the same yeah. thing. It's this is the beauty of tennis as well. You know, you go, you go and play the Irish Open. It's the same as Wimbledon. You know, you turn up, you do feel a bit uncomfortable at first. You mm. sat around and you see the top seed, and you think they're thinking this about me. Then you've got to go on the practice court. Then you've got to go and mm. collect the balls. 
you know yeah. you've got to do your warm-up in the corner with other people watching and you know it's mm -hmm. the, it's it's that whole process so so yeah. the, the more that younger players can get comfortable with that i think um the, the better really and to share a really quick story i remember when i was in college a guy called paul goldstein had just graduated from stanford and he was like mm -hmm. ncaa champion very good player and he was in the fourth round of us open and it was probably a year after college he graduated from college and i remember listening to this interview he was in the studio on cbs or whatever it would be and they said you know what's changed you know you've you're ranked at the time and ranked 150 in the world you've you've never really won a round in an atp tournament and here you are in the fourth round of the us open and he said i i now feel like i belong in the in the, in the locker room yeah 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 no and, definitely and that was it and that was he hadn't improved his forehand, hadn't improved his backhand, but he, he belongs. So, mm. so that it's it's a massive thing in our sport. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think that. Like, and I think, yeah, it's it's uh, it's easier said than done, right? Mentally, to you know, you can say that you're good enough, but it's it's like I remember playing Murney in Davis Cup and actually getting in, in doubles with Dave O'Hare and, and being a couple of games in, being like. Yeah, like this guy isn't, you know, he's obviously a class player, but he's not, you know what I mean? Like you kind of, you do kind of get to that element where you're like, you know, I'm a good player here and I, I do belong. Like, but um, I think as you move up the rankings, I think we all face our, face our demons or our challenges along the way. And it's not, you look, I mean, you I mean, you know, as well as I do, you see a lot of people, they might hit on the court beside you and everyone hitting up and down through the middle is, is, is class. Like, you know, it's very good. But when it gets, and that's kind of back to our earlier conversation around the training piece. Yeah. It's like, and that's what I love is I actually love getting into the heat of, getting into the heat of a battle, like, yeah. and, and yeah. figuring out a way to win and figuring out a way to, to kind of, um, to, 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 yeah, find a way to win. Um, and and uh, on your second point, Dan, around, the, around when I was working with you in terms of the being meticulous in the practice, like, you know, I guess... Yeah, for me, it was always around, I, I never, look, I knew that I, I knew I wasn't the best athlete in the world. I knew, and this was my job and I'm, I'm trying to be the best I can. And I knew I was a good player and stuff and I wanted to maximize my Absolutely. tennis. So if I'm, if I'm on court with you, I'm going to try and, you know, get as much information out of yeah. you as I can, basically. Like, yeah, yeah, no, great. Absolutely. You know, so so that, that was always my philosophy around that, like. Yeah, and, and that and that comes through loud and clear, and and I'm sure that's then what people have picked up after after your playing career as well. So so you've 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 played, you've gone to college, you've come out, you've played, you've had a, you've had a, a, a relatively successful career, you know. And I think, like you say, for yourself, it would be viewed as as very successful. How how was that transition then? from being, it's often untalked about this kind of, you're used to traveling the world, you're used to the, the thrill of playing matches, competing, spending time with the lads on the tour, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden you're thrown into the big, bad real world. How, how was that for you? Yeah, it was, it was hard. Like, I mean, again, I think, um, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go off on a rant or something, but I do think tennis does a really poor job around this like it's something that it's something that actually it actually irritates me a lot like as a sport i think the sport encourages people to kind of specialize young and to go to academies and to to, to you know chase this dream of of playing professionally 
but it kind of spits you out at the end as well, do you know? And, and, and I think there's an element where, you know, so when I just to kind of give you around, when I finished, I mean, I coached it a little bit, but my, in the back of my mind, I was like, I didn't want to kind of coach as my career. I wanted to get into business. I wanted to, you know, start my own business. I want to do different things. So, you know, I think I, one, I leveraged the connections that I had in terms of, you know, business connections that, that um, are good tennis players. And I asked them for mentorship and advice and asked them loads of questions like I would have done on court. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up, I ended up working in a company for about a year and a half, a uh, recruitment agency. And one of my roles just, so one of the guys who's a shareholder in the company is a professional rugby player who's, who's played for Ireland for, uh, for the last gazillion years and has won grand slams and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things I was doing was helping athletes with career transition. So it was a, it was a small element and I was doing kind of executive coaching qualifications in the background and kind of upskilling in that area. Other sports do a way better job than tennis. I mean, like rugby, for example, they have, they have, you know, um, representatives that will go out to each clubs, to the club and they will give, you know, support around mental health, around kind of financial coaching around, you know, preparing for life after rugby for injuries all that sort of stuff tennis is terrible like you know it is, it is absolutely shocking and um, and i've actually spoken to the itf before i've met someone there I've, I've spoken to two people there and i've said like look i mean you know i know you had peter bothwell on like peter should have been potentially maybe towards the end of his career hypothetically at a tournament and being able to be in his room and to be on the ipin and look at like Okay, how do I create a CV? How do I create a how do I yeah. create a LinkedIn profile? How do I interview for a job? How do I how do I network? How do, like surely yeah. there should be a there should be a program for players that they can that they can do this stuff. And other sports do it way better, you know. So yeah, like, yeah. you know, I had a conversation with someone around like why not send, you know, why not send a, a, someone to tournaments to kind of educate players around this, but. The point, which was a, which is a valid point, is that maybe players wouldn't want to feel, show other players that they were retired, potentially retiring or thinking yeah. of retiring from sport. But I think that's all bull. You know, I think, I think you're going to be a better, you're going to be a better player if you have other interests in your life. You know, if yeah, you have absolutely. other, if you have outside interests, I think, I think the research shows that. So the thing that irks me is that tennis as a sport conditions people. They bring them along this track you know, yep. to play professionally and then maybe you get to 500 and you're not, you're not yep. good enough to get higher. And then it's like, okay, well the sport essentially, the coaches or whoever you want to say, the, co the, the, the sport essentially says, okay, well we're, you know, the next batch is coming through and that person is kind of sent out to pasture. And what happens is, you know, you end up with a lot of, you know, and I, 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 you know, you end up with maybe some coaches who maybe don't want to coach tennis, but they're, yeah. and they're not that passionate about it. And then they, yeah. you know, so like, I think it's a vicious cycle. And I think, you know, I think, you know, obviously we talked about the college route, which I think personally, I think is, is the, is the way to go. However, that's not for everyone and that's fine, but players should be upskilling as they're playing because okay. you're going to have a life after the sport. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've kind of gone on a rant around that, but it's something that it's something actually from from working with other sports people, yeah. specifically yeah. rugby and soccer, and seeing 
how they do it and how much better they do it. You know, yeah. that, that, you know, the Olymp- so in Ireland, now, just to, just to clarify, in the UK, they do have a designated person now in the LTA that's, that's yeah. you know, trying to engage with athletes. But like other countries don't have that. Um, and, you know, Olympic sports in Ireland, for example, they have a dedicated lifestyle advisor that the athletes can go to that can help them on that Olympic cycle. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I finished playing in 2015. It's like, okay, James, what are you doing next? Like, you know? There should yeah. be some kind of, there should be some access for me to speak to someone like, and I don't think that's there, you know. I think it's a, I think it's a great point you make, James, and it's, you know, uh, like, like you've said earlier on, having, you know, these extra skill sets to your, to, to your bow to, to go out and play the game. I think it's very educational, also for young kids that are getting into the game now, and parents that are listening to this podcast. Uh, to understand that, like, if you use Pete as an example, you know, top 500 or 600 in the world and not, made, not able to make a living out of the sport and what, where are you going next to have that fallback on is, is absolutely huge for a tennis player and to know and understand, you know, what yeah. road they're going, they're going down. Um, how, how, would you, um, how would you envisage improving uh, the sport in, from that yeah. respect? Yeah, like, I mean, what, what I think is that, you know, again, to, to, you know, say Pete, for example, he loves tennis, he's going to be a great coach and he's passionate about it and that's great. But, and, yeah. but there's other players who, who stop playing who hate the sport. They're burnt out. They've been playing since six years old or seven years old. They've no other, they've no other options but to coach and they end up being a pissed off tennis coach who doesn't really want to be on the court, right? So, like, yeah. I mean, I think, I think players should be encouraged during their career that they should be, you know, there should be, again, online, like if we use the IPIN, for example, there should be access for players there to engage, to do CV, you know, to prepare CVs, to learn about networking, to learn, to learn some skills and to be really encouraged to take online courses and to be upskilling through their career. Um, I also think, you know, people you know individuals should be sent out to tournaments to to maybe a career coach or someone that's that's there that people have access to because i guarantee you there's players that are at tournaments that are they're thinking they're worried about the future like and they're worried about what they're going to do next and you know you guys were i know you were speaking a lot about mental health and and like it's hard you know you finish playing and and very difficult you know you you kind of like I, i i was telling someone this story that like i'm if I go to a Christmas, if I go to a, a family thing, I'm identified as the as the tennis player, right? Yeah. So like the default question has always been, James, how's the tennis going? Like you know, that's yeah. the question that people ask you. And as a tennis player, you're like, well, I'm ranked one one fifty now, and I'm playing in France next week. And if I, you know, I need to make it, it's very set on. You're looking at this mountain, you're trying to climb this mountain, right? Then yeah. when that ends you're kind of like, well, where's the next mountain? Like, and where, where am I going? Like, and what am I doing? And how do I get there? And, and it's not really defined. Like, um, and I think players need support around that. And, and, uh, and again, back to like rugby specifically, they invest so much, they invest a lot of money in, in supporting players. You know, they send, they send people out, they have career coaches, they have guidance, all that stuff. So, so um, I I think it's a, fantastic conversation and I think it's 
for me, it's actually out of the 50, 50 plus podcasts we've done. This segment is, is arguably the thing that I would be most passionate about in our sport. Actually, I think it's an amazing conversation and, and my thought process on it is who's accountable for it. And, and, and so if we take rugby or we take football, soccer, mm. we take Gaelic football, we take whatever, whichever sport we want to take, let's take Leinster. Leinster are, are employing a rugby player. Mm. Yeah, that rugby player is an asset to their business. Mm. You know, it's technically bringing money into their business through ticket sales, shirt sales, TV rights, whatever it might be. So there's, 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 they're duty bound to, to, to actually now look after that player in, in, in its totality. Uh, when I look at it from the tennis side, is it that the ITF don't feel fully accountable for that because they're not really employing players and taking them on? So the way that I look at that, and again, you've mentioned academies a couple of times, I see it as my accountability as academy mm. director. So if we've used Pete Bothwell's story yeah, you know, here, and it's you know, fantastic how he speaks about it on the podcast, I've always known Pete's journey. Mm. So when we, do, when we do goal setting, when we do performance plans, when we do roadmaps, there's, there's always a lifestyle part of that. And that's something that we, we take upon ourselves as an academy to do. Because, and I've had a player at the academy who, he was never going to be a tennis player. He was at the academy. His main reason and purpose, and I want to really connect with that purpose, was he struggled a bit at school. He got a bit bullied at school. Tennis was giving him something social. That worked for me for a couple of years, but then it didn't work for me after that because it was then going, what's next? So we then almost kind of forced him or worked strongly with him to make sure he had a second lifestyle goal, which then became learning to be a, a photographer. And, and now he makes money out of his photography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's so that so so I I believe that it come it does come down to that. Now it'd be fantastic for the ITF, the ATP, these people to to get involved in that as well. But that where the accountability lies is where it falls in my head a little bit. But on that, if you look at like if you look at rugby, right? So rugby is the Rugby Players Association, the RPA, which is which is yeah. essentially made up of players. Yes. So it's not it's not Leinster like Leinster are not kind of. Yeah, Leinster are not employing someone to okay. do that. It's more the players' association, so the okay. players have come together, which is essentially the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. And I, I do know, I think it is a lot cleaner in terms of team sports. I understand that and I agree with that. However, um, you know, and there is some stuff, and but like you know, when you obviously when you get to, when you have ATP players on and you look, and they have maybe a discount to kind of do an online, you know, they've different, they might have different things there. Yeah. But I think if you take someone who makes it to six hundred in the world or seven hundred in the world or eight hundred, I mean, they're essentially a scratch golfer. You know, they've done, they've they've uh. they've they've uh, they've played to a high level, and I think, I just think there's. I think tennis just missed a trick and has, has missed a trick. And I understand what you were saying around your kind of, you know, your accountability to your players. But I think generally coaches don't really think about, you know, they're thinking about lessons and 
yeah. you know, players and stuff. I mean, they, you know, they, they don't, like if we completely generalize, I think they're more thinking about, well, who's my next player coming along? Like, yeah, yeah, that's you know? right. I yeah. think, yeah. And, and um, I don't think it's rocket science to, to, to set up some kind of structure that like, again, through the eye pin, you can be, you can be, look, you can be, taking little courses or whatever so i don't know the answer to it but i do know that other sports do it way better and i think you know if if tennis is to be serious around kind of mental health and transition and these types of things i think we have to do a way better job like you know um, and agree with that and uh yeah and like as i said other sports do it better but for me i suppose the original question for me was yeah, like I kind of found my way with it, you know. I, I reached out to a lot of, um, I think one big thing for, for people listening to the podcast is, that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of successful business people that are that are um, tennis players or tennis fans, right? So, you know, one of my stints on Necker, I met a very successful business guy and I asked him his advice. I said, what would you do if you were me? And he said, he said, use your tennis to get in with the best business people. Yeah. Um, and I know that, you know, tennis has been a, a value add and has been something that has been unbelievable to me and it still is unbelievable to me. And there's life after tennis. Yeah. And tennis has been a gateway for me to meet incredible business people that, res- you know, I think the thing is, is that people respect, people have a, a, a you know, a respect for, for professional athletes or former professional athletes and they will, you know, pick up the phone or they'll go for a coffee with you, they'll give you advice. Um, so I've been kind of good at leveraging that and kind of learning from these people. And I suppose back to your early, earlier question, Dan, around kind of, you know, around on court, like soaking up the information. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's what, that's what my philosophy, like my philosophy has always been surround yourself with the best people or surround yourself with the people you want to become. So for yeah, me yeah. in tennis terms, it was like, okay, how do I play with the best players? How do I train with really good players? Where do I go? And and then in terms of my transition into business, it was like it was how do I get around really successful business people and learn from them, you know? And uh, look, we're always learning, and and uh, that was kind of that's the way I've gone about it. Fair play, yeah. And um, so, what are you doing now? So essentially, when I when I stopped, I worked for a couple of years in the company. Then I started a, a learning and development company where what I was doing was this is kind of pre COVID a little bit, but I was doing a lot of um, a lot of team development programs. So a lot of, you know, there'd be usually commercial, uh, so usually tech or financial services. A team is trying to hit a target, work with the team around that, design offsites and things like that for it. Um, I was doing a lot of one-to-one executive coaching stuff, um, yeah. and then a lot of a lot of speaking as well. So going into organizations and giving talks. Where it's kind of pivoted is is I had this idea about a year ago um, around. The whole idea was around giving people autonomy around their learning and development in companies. So essentially what I've done is create a learning and development platform with counselors, executive coaches, uh, nutritionists, sleep experts, breathing coaches, you know, all these different areas. So companies then they'll give their employees uh, a certain learning budget and those employees yeah. then can sign up for one-to-one sessions or webinars with these, uh, with these practitioners or with these experts. So, got a few good good few companies on board it's going going well and trying to build that out so um yeah so i'm really excited about that i'm really excited about what i'm doing and i feel like i've I've found the kind of 
I found the next mountain that I want to climb. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do think it kind of it does take a little bit of time to 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 find that find that mountain. But um, um, yeah. So so no, I'm 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 happy. Obviously, COVID has been has been challenging. It's been tough. Um, but as we were saying, kind of off air, there's always opportunity there, and you got to find the opportunity. And I think tennis, look, tennis teaches you how to compete and how to hustle. Yeah. <laughs> so like you got to yeah. compete, you got to hustle, like absolutely. Uh, and and that's uh, that's what you have to do. So, but yeah, things are things are okay. And James, you you, you wrote a uh, a book, uh, Advantage. I did, uh, yeah. So so I wrote the book, and the book came out a couple of months ago. Uh, so it's lessons from sport and business to achieve your goals. Um, and yeah, essentially what I did was kind of what we've been talking a little bit around was like, it's very much around kind of how I was, you know, my, I suppose, goal setting journey in terms of moving up the rankings and the, the challenges I faced along the way. Um, and then also uh, the lessons that I would have learned from the players I played with and against um, in terms of off court stuff. And then also, the business people I've been lucky enough to meet through through Necker and through Ireland and through these places that that the, the lessons I would have learned from these people and and uh, yeah the book is the book is has has done well and I'm I'm happy with it I'm glad I I kind of had started pre COVID now and then kind of during lockdown I threw myself into finishing it off and and getting it published and stuff so um so yeah so so it's going well and I'm 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 happy I did it and. Uh, I don't know if there'll be a sequel now, to be honest. I think that's probably the end of my, that's probably the end of my book writing days. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll bring you in, John, to do the audio book. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good, man. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to let the book lie. We're going to get some sales out of this book from, for you on this podcast. But uh, just 50%, that's fine. That's all we need. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, no. Swipe, but, up. The, Swipe up on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The, the truth is that most people aren't fulfilling their potential. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think people, you know, people have goals. I mean, if you take, if you take, say, you know, New Year's goals, you know, people set these lofty goals and then a couple of weeks in, they're, they're gone, you know. And I think people, people need to think bigger and people need to create action plans around achieving their goals. Um, and for me in tennis, that was all always around, you know, what is the vision? What is the goal? What ranking am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to do? You know, and then what are the small, what are the small details I can do on a daily basis to, to help me achieve that goal? So for me with, in tennis, it was, you know, it was like, I, I go through a piece in the book where I talk about like having a goal ranking of being inside 250 in doubles and actually not really playing very well and having and struggling results wise and just it being the result of me putting so much pressure on myself every week and then i worked with a, a sports psychologist and, and the guy who had no tennis background whatsoever he said he asked me to break the points down in terms of how many second rounds how many semi-finals how many finals how many wins that i need over the course of the year so when i actually broke that down into what i needed to do over the course of the year it actually was much more achievable and attainable um, and then it was to kind of go one step back and say well okay my my goal has been inside 250 now what do i need to do on a daily basis to help me achieve that goal so how many serves do i need to hit a week how many times do i need to go to the gym and all those types of things and then following on from that when i went to you know not that i thought it was unique to tennis 
But I remember one of the stints I did on Necker, I met an entrepreneur who's, who sold a couple of businesses and I asked his advice on goal setting. And he just said, what is the vision? And work backwards as far as you can from that vision. Yeah. So essentially, again, the sports lessons can, can translate into business, you know? So, um, so yeah, so that, 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 that's really helped me. Like, What's the best bit of advice you've ever received from Sir Richard? Uh, uh, what would be the best piece of advice? I mean, I don't know if he said one thing. There's one. There's one thing I put in the book. Well, there's two two things I'd like to say. No, one is is he actually he did this cycle um, on a different island, and basically he was absolutely shattered. Like, and I was thinking there is no way the guy's gonna want to play tennis today, and he came back. And he was like, I'll grab my racket and I'll be down, you know. And I was thinking, geez, this guy is just an animal. Like, as in he's, he's now he's 70. Like, at the time, he's probably 68. And I said to him, we were picking up the balls, and I said to him, if you could, I can't remember the exact question I said, but if you could, you know, one word. And he said, relentless. You know, and that's something that's always stayed with me. Like, he is, he is relentless, like, in terms yeah. of his, his performance. Um, like, as in... You know, I did 30 days with him once. I played tennis with him 28 days, twice a day. So, like, yeah. he's just he has this ability just to keep going. And the second thing is his his ability with people. You know, so so um, I remember. So I would I would kind of organize this tennis tournament on the island, and you can have, you know, it's a, it, there's two courts, and there's a lot of tennis coaches listing. Like, it's a little bit stressful. There's two co- coach or there's two courts. There's, you know, a lot of guests or maybe 25, 30 people. You're trying to make sure everyone gets their tennis in and so on. At the end of every single, at the end of every single event, he'll come over to you. You'll present this trophy on the court. He'll put his arm around you and he'll say, brilliant tournament, James. Well done. Absolutely loved it. Three cheers for James. That's great. And then later in the day, you might have a cup of tea with him and he'll say, that was a great tournament maybe we could do it this way. Or what do you think about doing this? Like he's amazing at giving that kind of constructive, positive feedback. Um, yeah. And he has this ability to kind of make you feel welcome. And, and uh, so that, that was, that's the thing that stands out with me is just his ability with people. Um, yeah. You know, and it's, mm-hmm. and it's, yeah. it's not an intellectual thing. Like it's not a, Fair you know, it's, it's, it's again, it's EQ. Like, so those two things really. Very good. So James, we got a quick fire round. Okay. Do you want me to take it today, John? Yes, that'd be great, Dan. <laughs> I'm not fully back on the saddle just yet. I'm easing my way back into the controllable. AstroTurf or clay? Clay. What what is it on NECA? Astro. Oh, oh so Richard's not gonna be happy with that. <laughs> so, serve or return? Serve. Tennis or business? Uh, tennis still. Virgin or, or British Airways? Oh, come on. Is that a serious question? <laughs> <Where we got? laughs> one, one rule change that you would have in tennis? Um, no warm-up. One transferable skill that you've taken from tennis to business? Networking. And one transferable skill that you would take from business back into tennis? 
networking. <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know. You stumped me on that now. Have I failed a quick fire if I don't answer that? Oh, dramatic, you've dramatically failed. It's our first fail. <laughs> Maybe fear. So that's, that's a bit controversial. But fear in business. Like the fear of failure almost. Explain. Like I, I saw it now. It's, it's, actually, it's actually from, I did see an interview with Roy Keane, which is obviously sports, but I do think about it in business. Like there's an element of, he was saying that he was motivated by fear. Yep. You know? And I think in the current environment, you know, I'm motivated by fear as well. You know, you need to pay the bills. You need to, you need to, um, you need to, bring, I need to bring clients on. I need to do that stuff. So like, I think in tennis terms, we're always talking about fun and, you know, goals and yep. like sometimes the fluffy stuff, but some, you know, I think fear is a good thing in some ways. Like it. in small doses. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. I think it's makes a lot of sense, and it's, it's worth the wait. <laughs> we'll we'll, ed, we'll we'll edit some of the other stuff out, so we'll we'll make it sound as if you came to that very quickly, rather than taking okay. two and a half minutes of fluff to get to it. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. But uh, J- James Klusky, you've been a star, honestly, mate. It's, oh, no, it's, it's great to reconnect with you. You know, it's great to see a fella tiger. Do, doing fantastic things. I have to confess, I've not read the book, but I, I will. No worries. I'll put you down for 50. Is it 50 copies? <laughs> I, I only need one to read. <laughs> I, only need, I only need one to read, but no, thank you very much. It's no, been no, great no, having no, you on. Anytime. James, and, thanks very much for coming on. Unbelievable. An Irish, ten, an Irish tennis legend. And uh, so good to have you on this podcast with us. A big, big thank you from Dan and I. No, thanks. And if anyone, if anyone wants to connect with me who's listening, just Dan, connect us up anyway, or I'm on LinkedIn. I'll be pretty active on LinkedIn or whatever. So, or Instagram or whatever. Just find a way to connect and happy to talk. Top man. Thanks, James. All right. No worries. Big thank you to James Kluski. Some, some great messages in there. I know I, I, I learned a lot. Uh, we don't we don't get if we don't ask you know that ability to to connect with people and we're talking about one of the most successful human beings of of the last 20 30 years sir richard branson and as he said it wasn't an intellectual thing it was about his ability one to work hard and be relentless with that and two his ability to connect with people and make people feel good yeah, it's not rocket science. It's it's about doing those basic things very well, and I know that James does those things very well as as well, and that he's going to be very successful uh, as he as he makes his way through his career in business. Uh, but those are some big messages that I certainly took from the pod. Um, as they say, you don't you don't get if you don't ask. So at this point, it would be wrong if I didn't ask you all to to pop onto your iTunes. And give us give us a rating, leave us a, rev- a review, and please share on social media. You know we're watching the traction that these podcasts are getting. Uh, they're really starting to raise up and up and up, uh, so they're starting to get into the hands of the right people, and that's that's exactly what we want from this. We've said it all along. We want to energize you guys. We want to educate you guys, and we want to entertain you. And the more people that we're able to do 
with that, then the more successful that this project is for us. Uh, look out for Mark Hilton and Dan Evans are going to come and do a special show for me uh, in the next in the next 24, 48 hours to give us an insight into the bubble in New York City. As it stands, everyone's out there for Cincinnati and US Open, and it's going to be fantastic just to find out exactly how it is over there, uh, what, what we can expect in the next couple of weeks, and what they're experiencing. So make sure you look out for that one. And then we have Lewis Burton coming later in the week, and uh, then Jonathan Overend as well from BBC Five Live, the godfather of, of, of radio commentary. And so, yeah, some great guests coming up. We're absolutely loving what we're doing. Thank you all for your support. For now, I'm Dan Kiernan, my co-host, John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.